0: Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Aries. Before I set out on my book tour, I had the most incredible conversation with today's guest, Dr. Lori Santos, who's a professor at Yale University and who I had the pleasure of speaking with when we shared a panel at the Massachusetts Conference on Women last December. Now, the minute I spoke with her and when we were geeking out backstage in the green room talking about cognitive science and psychology and gender and happiness, I knew I had to get her on the pod. So she has been very patient with us as I hounded her for the past six straight months saying, when can we get you on the podcast? I know you're busy. I know you're important. You're a delight. I need to share you with our listeners. So this is a conversation a long time coming and I'm so honored that Lori made time to have this. If you love conversations like this one that you're about to hear, the Bossed Up book is full of big systematic conversations and practical, tactical, personal applications for how you can take the tools and tactics in the book to really hack your way into a broken sexist system. So we're going to talk about the big systems of oppression that keep women down, that set up all these tripwires and fault lines that women can struggle with. But we also hack into the research around how you can step up as the boss of your life, how you can beat burnout or keep burnout at bay, and really advocate for the career and life you want. Of course, with lots of stories of real women in this Bossed Up Courage community who are making it happen. Now... If you haven't ordered your copy yet, go to org slash book to do so today and it should arrive at your door. I think it actually is on Prime on Amazon, so it takes two days to get to you. Makes a huge difference in supporting this podcast and supporting my work. And if you feel strongly about what you hear today, make sure to share this episode with the women in your life who could use some happiness hacks grounded in the latest and greatest science and research. So let's dive into my conversation with Laurie Santos, a professor of psychology and the head of Silliman Residential College at Yale University. She's also the director of the Comparative Cognition Laboratory and the Canine Cognition Center. That's right. Teddy the dog is a big fan of happiness, too which she studies all about at Yale. She received her A.B. in psychology and biology from Harvard University in 1997 and her Ph.D. in psychology from Harvard in 2003, And I have to just add here that Lori's course on happiness and well-being that she began offering at Yale became so popular and so in demand, it actually became Yale's most popular course in history. And then they went on to not only feature it and feature her in the New York Times, but also release a public version of the course that you can take on Coursera. I will make sure to link to those in today's show notes so you can learn more about how to hack into your happiness and craft your best boss life possible. Lori, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So you and I met when I had the good fortune of having you put on my panel at the Massachusetts Conference of Women back in, I want to say that was early December now, right? Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. The more I looked into you, the more I completely geeked out because (laughs) all of our Bossed Up listeners know that I am as much of a geek around social science and system change as I am around changing our own minds and really hacking into our psychology and cognitive science behind living a more, you know, what I call a happy, healthy, and sustainable life. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the science of well-being and what you do with that information at Yale. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a professor of psychology here at Yale.
1: My day job was really studying animals. I'm really interested in how animals think. So it was a little bit different, but I got more interested in the science of well-being when I took on this new role at Yale. I became one of their heads of college. So Yale's kind of like Hogwarts, where it has like, it's like Gryffindor and Slytherin and these kinds of weird colleges within Yale. And so I took over Silliman College, which is one of the colleges. But basically that just means I live with college students now. Like I hang out with them on campus. I eat with them. In the dining hall, like I hang out with them in their coffee shop. And so I started to see this college student mental health crisis really up close and personal. You know, just students are just much more anxious than they've ever been. They feel really overwhelmed. You know, they're so lucky to be at a place like Yale University, but they're missing it, right? Because they're just feeling so over the top. And so I decided to get into the science of well-being mostly to help the students. I thought if I could just teach them all this scientific content, you know, all these hacks that we get from science that could be really easy, then maybe they could put those different habits into, into effect in their own lives.
0: I relate to that so hard because to get to the heart of these high achieving straight A students, brown nosers like myself, having been to Brown University for my undergrad, I can relate to that fervor. Of achievement, that's sort of like we get into a lather of achievement as students. And we don't necessarily take things like, oh, we should take care of ourselves. Oh, we should practice self care. Yeah, that's for people who don't want a 4.0. You know what I mean? (laughs) We don't necessarily get to the heart of well being this way. I had to hear the practical argument, I had to hear the strategic argument for taking care of myself from the psychology of it. So getting at it from that angle seems like such a rational approach to students who've learned to sacrifice their short-term wants, needs, and desires for the sake of those longer-term goals, like, you know, getting into a school like Yale. And so we've grown up in this semester sprint mentality that, you know, if you just put your head down and work really hard, you'll be rewarded later. And I think we get sort of used to suppressing those short-term desires in a way.
1: Yeah, and, and I think it becomes a culture where you can't even mention if you're failing at those short-term desires, right? You can't mention that you're right. feeling overwhelmed. It's a culture that brags about having too little sleep or that brags about being so overworked and taking on additional classes and so on. And so I think it can start to feel really lonely when you're like, this isn't working for me anymore. Like, you know, I, I yes. cannot sustain this. It kind of makes people feel like an imposter or a failure.
0: Yeah. And I remember thinking to myself back in those days when I didn't really invest in my long-term sustainability or see that as an important thing that it was a sign of weakness asking for help, taking care of myself. I used to pull all-nighters all the time in college and I prided myself on that work ethic, but at some point I re- I think I recognized that I was compulsively filling my plate to the point of overflowing. You know, I was compulsively filling up my time and constantly trying to pad my resume. For what? (laughs) And I don't know when we have those realizations, some of us sooner than others. But for me, it was really in life years after college when I recognized, oh, huh, no one's going to give me an A for working all the time. What am I doing this for anymore? You know, what is the point? So tell me what well-being means to you when you when you study the science of well-being. What does that really mean that we're aiming for?
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm a science nerd. So I use all the definitions that come from the social sciences. And so I take the social science on positive psychology to define well-being in two ways. One is it's what folks call a cognitive evaluation. So it's kind of like all things considered, how's your life going? It's kind of just how you think your life is going. Yeah. But the second part is an affective part. It's the emotional part. It's like day-to-day, are you feeling positive emotions? Are you laughing? Are you enjoying yourself? Are you having meaning? And are you not feeling the negative emotions? Are you not feeling frustrated and depressed and impatient Mm. and these kinds of things? And so I take well-being to be maximizing both of those, like maximizing the extent to which you think, hey, my life is going well, but you're not doing that at the expense of feeling emotionally awful all the time.
0: Yeah. Those are are hard things to measure (laughs) in science, right?
1: In some ways it should be hard to measure, but the great thing about studying humans relative to dogs, who's the other population I study, is like, you could just ask humans, you know, literally I could ask all things considered on a scale of one to five, how how satisfied are you with your life right now? And you'll have some answer. And it turns (laughs) out the science shows that those answers are pretty consistent. You know, they map onto things like if I did a big text analysis of your journaling or your emails, or your Facebook mm. posts, you know, they map on to neuroscientific measures. It's just like cheaper and easier to ask folks. Like we actually
0: have pretty good access to this stuff compared to like you know uh, counting how many times the dog wags its tail or what. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah, as an animal scientist who uses you know really
1: careful behavioral analyses of how animals behave, it seemed weird that like my my scientific dependent measure was going to be like you know all things considered, how do you think it's going? But it turns out that those measures work work pretty well. And, yeah. and it's what we're trying to maximize. You know, if my students came away from learning about the science of well being, and they said, you know, from before to after your class, I'm more satisfied with my life. I report having more positive emotions. I feel like I've succeeded.
0: Yeah. Those are the same kinds of metrics we started measuring back in 2013 when I started Bossed Up. And we threw together basically our theory of change, which was Bossed Up Bootcamp, a weekend long training program grounded in research, psychology, cognitive science, but also really hammering home on work, love, and wellness being interconnected. And for years, you know, we tracked afterwards, a month later, three months later, six months later, you know, 12 months later, how are those numbers changing? And it's interesting to see how people's perception of where they are in relation to their circumstances, really seems to be a big indicator of happiness. That sensation of agency, right? Feeling like I'm the boss of my life, which of course is what boss stuff is all about, (laughs) imbued with the spirit of hip hop, really. (laughs) But (laughs) it's all about writing your own come-up story. Has that come up in your research? This this idea that agency, power, you know, direction that you have some control over your mental outcomes. You have some control over your happiness. Like what is that like when you introduce that concept to students. Yeah, I think it
1: comes up in the science in in a couple ways. Like so a lot of the ways we teach the scientific work is to talk about this idea that our minds are constantly lying to us about what will make us happy. Like like simply put our minds just suck. Like they're not built in efficient, optimal, <laughs> rational ways. Like they're kind of a pain in the butt to deal with, but we're stuck with them. And so the idea is if we can understand the ways our mind does dumb things, we can get better. And so one of the dumb things our mind does is our mind isn't tracking objectively how we're doing in the world. Our mind is checking how we're doing relative to something else, relative to, say, our expectations, which might be out of line, you know, relative to how we were doing before, relative to our perception of agency and so on. Or our
0: Instagram feeds, right? Exactly. You know, relative
1: to how everyone else is doing, right? And so... I think part of the agency is recognizing that it's like, hang on, like, you know, even if I'm objectively doing well in terms of my salary, in terms of my accolades, in terms of my performance, that might not reflect in how I'm feeling myself right i might not be getting this kind of happiness hit from it in the way i expected and that means right. i need to take some agency about like what those comparisons really are you know shut off the instagram feed like really take time to look at you know how have i changed in the last year like do these specific practices that can give us some important hints there
0: so what you're saying is if we can give ourselves permission to track our own progress based on our own circumstances right like there is that progress principle in the research that the sensation of a forward movement is in itself motivating, right? That's right. Yeah. And one of the ways we've done that is I'm a big fan of journaling if that works for folks, but I lately haven't found time ever since I became a writer for work. I have not found time to write for myself, you know, Mm -hmm. like I used to, the little musings in my, in my journal, but the planner that we developed tracks on a monthly basis. How are you doing month over month in terms of your most important goals, not your boss's deadlines, not your family obligations, like making dinner or whatever it is that we have to do to sustain ourselves and our families. But, you know, the biggest, most important goals that often get sidelined or sidetracked, how are we tracking those month over month and then quarter by quarter? And just Mm -hmm. giving yourself that attention and comparing yourself to your past self. Is that what I'm hearing you say is like the one way you can take agency over that perception. Exactly. And it's
1: comparing yourself against your past self. Because I think often, you know, we are growing, we are improving, but we don't notice it. The two comparison points we often use are other people. And we don't pick other people who are losers. You know, we pick the like Beyonce's (laughs) of our field, right? Like we pick the completely unattainable standard, right? And we constantly feel bad. Whereas if we're measuring our progress against something reasonable which is ourselves which is really you know who we're competing against then things can be better i think the second comparison point is just perfection you know some ideal like figure that's perfect in every single domain from relationships to work stuff, to love stuff, like it's just not gonna happen. And so I love the idea of this planner where you're really looking relative to your specific goals, your specific progress, and you take time to see it. And my guess is often when we take that relative approach, we don't get tripped up by these dumb features of our mind. You know, we're not looking at our progress relative to some, you know, Instagram bikini model or some unattainable, (laughs) you know, person at work. Like we're really seeing it relative to ourselves and that's where we're gonna see improvement.
0: Totally. That's why I feel like the community you surround yourself with, and I want to talk to you about one of the biggest takeaways I got from your panel conversation at that conference has to do with social interactions. But mm-hmm. one of the things we say here at Boss is that you don't need a community of support. You need a community of courage. You need mm-hmm. the kind of people who are going to be there for you and cheer you on when you're killing it and when you're being crushed by it. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And releasing that standard of perfection. Can give us permission to be honest when we're totally screwing up. Otherwise, some really bad ethical things happen if we pretend that perfection is the only possible way forward. Mm-hmm. I heard an entrepreneur say to me once, this has to work. And I was like, Oh God, yeah. <laughs> that is not a healthy attitude. <laughs> like, and her business sort of fell apart from there. But every time you put yourself out there in a new way, I see it as an experiment. I'm gonna learn something about how this goes. I'm not invested in the outcome necessarily. Obviously, I'd like this book to do well, but however it goes, I'm going to be listening for the good and the the bad feedback mm-hmm. and trying to learn something in that process. But it's a very vulnerable component to how you see yourself in charge of your life in relation to other people. So how does the social component play a role in in some of the well-being stuff you study?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that this idea of not focusing on the end goal or not focusing on perfection and really focusing on what you can learn kind of maps onto some of the things that the science is telling us. So there's a lot of scientific work right now on what's called mindset, right? The way you kind of think about things. Are you focused on growing or are you focused on the final outcome? Like you have to be perfect now. And researchers talk about different mindsets that people can have. So they, they talk about some folks who have a growth mindset, right? You're like, you know, my book didn't do well, but it didn't do well yet, right? Like, what can I do next time to make this better? Mm. Or, you know, that project at work didn't go well, but it didn't go well yet. Like, and the yet part is really important because you're constantly thinking about, okay, what's the next step? How am I going to learn from this? How am I going to innovate? And so on. The opposite mindset, the not as good one is what researchers call a fixed mindset, where you're just like, did I make the accolade or not? Like, did I get yeah. there? Did I meet my performance goal or not? And if you don't, if what it's about is the performance goal, then as soon as you don't make it, you're done and you feel awful. And you, you wanna hide what you're you doing. don't,
0: right? Yeah, and you yeah. wanna
1: hide the problems, right? Because any problem could be a sign that, you know, you're doomed, you can't change. And there's tons of research, both in children and in adults, showing that these mindsets, really just the way you're framing the problem, can mm. affect your performance. It affects how much you learn. It affects your resilience, how much you come back from bad things happening. It can be incredibly powerful. And so I think that this, this focus on whether you can change, whether it's okay to mess up and okay to get better, can be really powerful. It's something I struggle with myself. I think oh. I grew up with a very fixed mindset. You know, I was good Me at too. something or I was bad at something. Yeah. My husband actually is a great source of inspiration on this because he's like the most growth mindset person I know. Two years ago, he started this task of starting to play basketball. He just does 53 throws a day, which seems crazy. And when he started, he was like one for 50. And now he's like shooting at about 60%. And he just like does it every day. And I'm like... Wasn't that awful in the beginning where you're just getting feedback that you're just so horrible at this? And he's like, no, that's Mm -hmm. how you get better. Like, if I wasn't horrible, I would have nowhere to improve, right?
0: I really think there's a lot of lessons in athletics for growth mindset. And it's so funny. You're basically preempting like this whole chapter in my book about Carol Dweck's research, about fixed rate mindset. And for whatever reason, I was a volleyball athlete in college. My husband was a tennis athlete, and we both had very different mindsets about it all. You know, it was just like, you either got it or you don't from my perspective. And I really struggled emotionally relating to that potential for improvement until meeting him. And he was like, what's the big deal? Like, don't let one bad practice day, you know, ruin your whole image of yourself. And I hope for that resilience, you know, to be passed on. Well, one of the spots where the research suggests
1: it's actually the power of that little word yet. Right. So when you're like, I messed up, you know, I didn't achieve my goal. Just stick that word at the end of it. This is what Carol Dweck's work suggests. So, you know, I didn't meet my performance goal versus I didn't meet my performance goal yet. It's like when you throw the yet at the end, it just opens your mind up to the possibility of like, well, not now, but in the future. So what can I do now to kind of make my future better? You know, how can I improve? What are the steps I need to take? And I that can that. be incredibly powerful. And, and I think that you know, even in this world of folks, you know, talking about performance and kind of the self-help type movement about wellness, this kind of thing can get lost. You know, often we're like, you've got to think positive. You know, you have to avoid thinking about any of the bad stuff. But thinking about the obstacles is is an important part of how we learn. We need to see the bad stuff to do better.
0: Yeah, that's why I rail against vision boards. (laughs) I have a very unpopular opinion, but it's very much supported by the research that if you fixate too much on the end destination, this faraway goal that you just focus on exclusively, you're not going to see the path before you. You're not going to devote enough energy to figuring out, okay, here's an obstacle. How am I going to get over it, around it, under it? past it to move forward. And there is this sort of weird perversion of positive psychology that's like, dream it and you'll achieve it. Just manifest right. by cutting and pasting. And I vehemently oppose that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the data are so strong, like, you know, there are data on, you know,
1: in all different domains in the domain of kind of weight loss and fitness. So research finds that the people who more fantasize about what their life will be like when they've lost weight or when they've kind of gone to the gym and they're more fit, they actually lose less weight because the idea is their mind just thinks they're there already. You know, this is talking about the dumb features of the mind. This is another dumb feature of the mind is like when our mind envisions it, we feel like we're already there. So all that frustration, all that energy, we're kind of like, let that go because I'm good. I'm there already. And we get confused.
0: One of the other really interesting takeaways I gained from your contributions on our panel together was how your brain overestimates the anxiety or the discomfort that might be involved with social interactions, particularly with strangers. And as someone who flies very often for public speaking all over the country and for training programs that I host all over the country, I have a habit that I changed after hearing from you on this, which oh, it's is so cool. I, I pop on my Bose headphones, throw on that noise cancelling switch, and I am... In the cocoon of my podcast world or this American life or my music or whatever it is. And I am just not interacting with strangers in public transit. And this came to a head once when I got a Facebook message from a friend who I know in Denver who was like, Were you at DIA? Were you at the airport today? And I was like, Yeah, I basically lived there. He's like, We were trying to say hi to you. Oh. <laughs> we were on the tram together, but like you seemed like you were kind of in your own little world there. And I'm like, Damn. OK, that's eye opening. And then what did you share on our panel about the experience people have talking to strangers?
1: Yeah, well, this is another spot where our minds just simply lie to us. You know, one of the reason my college students are so depressed and anxious is that they're all really lonely. You know, over 65 percent of them report being very lonely most of the time. Oh. But it's in part because they just don't talk to people. You know, these Bose headphones that we throw on, they prevent people from, Kind of penetrating, asking you how right. your day is going, just the simple connections. And what the research really suggests is that this is another spot where our mind lies to us. You know, take your commute to work. You know, would you be happier if you talked to some random stranger for that 20 minutes or half hour? You know, most people say like, God, no, that would be super awkward, like the most awkward thing. Right. But it turns out when you force people to do this, when you actually have them have a conversation with someone, yeah. they feel great. You know, it reduces loneliness. It increases yeah. positive mood throughout the day. But it doesn't change like what our minds think, like our minds still lie. Like I still mess this up. My airport story is I was on a flight, you know, just as like you, I'm traveling and speaking all these places. And so I do this a lot. I'm on a flight, you know, wearing my noise canceling headphones. I'm checking my email and I get an email from a journalist who'd heard me talk about the same research. And she was like, I just wanted to share this wonderful story with you. I was on this flight and you know, I was starting to take into account what you were telling me. So I started talking to the guy next to me. Actually, he started talking to me and we talked for a four hour flight. I thought it was going to be awful, it was great. And at the end of the flight, he's like, you know, normally I don't do this, but I read this article by this professor at Yale and she said to do this. Ah. And she was like, and she was like, isn't that great? And I'm checking this email after a six hour flight and I literally had not talked to the person who was <laughs> sitting next to me. And I'm like ashamed with Gil, you know, took the headphones yeah. off, like asked the person, how's it going? You know, but yeah. even knowing the research, it doesn't change what your mind tells you. And this is the big problem. And and I think one of the reasons that podcasts like this are so important, you can know what you have to do, but you right. have to put it into practice. You have to have good tools to do that.
0: Yeah. I should add to the chorus of people who are reporting to you that it's changed, the way I interact with people and strangers in particular for the better. You know, I've had so many, it feels like life-changing conversations on planes lately. But more so than that, I've recognized that there's this initial anticipation anxiety, right? There's this initial amount of effort that we have to overcome to get into that conversation. And I do worry, I mean, this is, I go down these like feminist dystopian uh, tangents on occasion, (laughs) but I do worry in the age of anti-street harassment, which is important, and the era of Me Too, right, and anti-assault and sexual harassment on every level, that especially conversations between men and women have become really interestingly fraught lately. And I have a ton of single friends here in Denver, and I'm like, you guys are so great. Why are you single? How is this possible? And the men report saying, you know, if I talk to a stranger, I get an eyebrow raised. And I get where women are coming from because, you know, some men want to kill us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. there's this self-preservation required sometimes. I think a lot about the loneliness epidemic that's happening globally. What can we do? What can our listeners today do to start chipping away at that in a way that feels safe for them? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think the start is just to, to recognize that it's an issue, you know, recognize that our intuitions might be off that, you know, when someone starts talking to us, our intuition's like, Oh my gosh, this is a psychopath. Something terrible is going to happen, but that's vanishingly unlikely. You know, even in this age of awful stuff happening to us, it's still vanishingly unlikely that the random guy who probably lives near you, if he's commuting on your commuter train, right. Is going to do something terrible to you. Usually people's intents are good. I think another thing is that we have to become more available. You know, when I think of the moments that I've missed out on social connection. It's kind of my own fault, you know, because I'm looking down at this small square of technology that we hold in our pockets, right? I do this in my own way, like at at the college, right? You know, with this wonderful courtyard where I live on Yale's campus, and I probably walk through that courtyard every day. And sometimes I'm walking through the courtyard and seeing people, and sometimes I'm checking my email or looking at a text. And just the sheer amount of interactions, smiles, noticing the other people around me that Mm. happens... It's just way less if I'm looking at my phone. And so I think we need to, even as busy professionals, take time away from being on tech to kind of having our ears trapped in these like wonderful headphones. Like we need to take time away from that to really connect with people.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of your work has reinforced what I and many people suspect, which is that sheer time with people, quality time with friends, loved ones, family members, even strangers is a huge component to not only what I focus on, which is combating burnout, but also building towards well-being overall. Mm -hmm. And for me, I'm the kind of person who that initial effort that it takes to get together with your friends has always been quite prohibitive. (laughs) Because I'm like, Mm -hmm. I can't schedule all these things because I'm scheduling events for a living. I'm scheduling like 30 book tour stops right now. I can't schedule a happy hour. So for me, I'm a big believer in the set it and forget it philosophy of a weekly meetup brad my husband has a weekly wednesday night wing night with his pals and i was like this isn't fair like what am i supposed to do sit here all alone (laughs) no and so i've got women crush wednesdays at my favorite women-owned cocktail bar in denver and that has made such a big difference we don't know who's going to show up every time but just creating availability creating boundaries creating space so that i know i'm done with work at six o'clock on a wednesday because i have a i have a standing date with some friends And that gets to another
1: thing that I think the research is really showing is super important, which is that you have to have that Wednesday couple hours free, right? Researchers are making a big deal these days of a concept they call time affluence, which Uh. is just this idea of not feeling famished for time. Because when we're feeling famished for time, the research shows we're just naturally less social. You know, if you're just like feeling like, oh, God, I can't even like spare like 10 minutes to go to the bathroom. You're not like, oh, I'll just go to a happy hour and hang with my friends. You're like, you know, triage all that stuff. Like, I just need to get into work. But objectively, we all have time if we can make it. And so the research shows that kind of gifting yourself a little bit of time, kind of setting that hour where it's like nothing will compete with this. That's just, Mm. you know, my my lady's Wednesday night like that can be incredibly powerful. We just have to do that in advance. We have to stick it in our calendar, practically open it up and then it becomes then it becomes there. Then it can help us.
0: And not to be dystopian once again, but I feel like when you talk about time affluence, there's an intersection of class there that becomes very social, systematic, oppression kind of vibey for me, Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. lack of a technical term, because there are just some people in our capitalist economy who have more time affluence than others.
1: The research does show that this often doesn't play out the way we think, that it's some of the the wealthiest people who have the most time famine. It's people with higher salaries who are more time strapped, huh. which is kind of funny because you'd assume that, again, in our economy, you know, one thing you'd want to do with your money is to buy yourself some time to open it up. But the problem is that as you make more money, then your time becomes more valuable Then you want to work more because you're getting more time for your money. And it kind of gets really messed up. Liz Dunn, who's a colleague of mine at the University of British Columbia, she, she has a new TED talk that just came out about this idea, about like how we kind of get messed up in how we use our money. And there are ways to spend it to get more time that feel much better.
0: The New York Times just had an article, was that with her research, about the wealthier couples are the ones in which gender imbalances are becoming even more pronounced, because it requires one. Couples' 24-hour availability to make that kind of a salary is that her research? I feel like I saw her name in that article.
1: Yeah, it's it's similar. This work by her and another woman, Ashley Willens, who's a professor at Harvard who does this work. Awesome. And basically, what she finds is like people who are happier are the people who spend their money to get more time. You know, and again, this, as you point out, is like a privileged <laughs> yeah. thing to do, right? Like yeah. not everyone can can do that. But the idea is, if you can do it, then don't you know hoard your money on don't stuff, waste like, it. At least spend your money in ways that'll make you happy.
0: It's so funny. Last year, I did a little personal project that I called Year of Fun (laughs) because after five years of building a business, I recognized that I had never prioritized fun because I was so busy prioritizing revenue and impact and lots of other great things So I said to myself at the beginning of last year, what would it look like to just design for the maximum amount of fun? And I had so much fun last year. And I also had my best year in business ever and learned a lot Mm -hmm. about how prioritizing different kinds of fun, social fun, you know, growth mindset type hobbies, like learning to play the drums and lots of other forms of fun were great, but it left me really exhausted (laughs) because I don't think I worked any less. I just added more fun. And so this year I'm starting to experiment with truly working less you know, less but better. And I feel like at the cost of potentially earning more money, I've given myself the freedom and flexibility of time. And I constantly go back and forth with folks about which is more valuable, which do you think would be better for you. And so you're affirming me right now.
1: The research is so clear on this, that one of the crazy self-report items Ashley Williams and her colleagues use is just a simple one. They're like two people, Tina and Maggie, who are you more like? Tina will just do anything she can to get extra time. You know, she'll take less hours at work. She'll take her vacation. She wants to prioritize her time. Maggie wants to prioritize her money. You know, she'll like take more hours at work. She'll give up time to try to make more money. Who are you more like? And that one item measure predicts happiness in the moment. It also when given to college students will predict their happiness later on when they graduate and go off into the working world. And so again it it sounds like something where you know we have this idea that making more money, you know getting more accolades, getting more success at work, that's the thing that's going
0: to matter. Yeah. But it might
1: just be wrong. It might be that time is more powerful.
0: Yeah. Oof, that's a good note to end on. And part of why I encourage women to say no, <laughs> that's what my TED talk's mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. about, and why I encourage us to set the kind of boundaries we need to live the kind of life we want, right? It's all about advocating for yourself at work to craft the well-being-oriented life that we're aiming for. Lori, where can our ladies catch up with you? I hear you've got an awesome new podcast debuting this September. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so it's called The Happiness Lab and it's going to be on all of these different ways our mind lies to us about the kinds of things that will make us happy. It'll launch September 17th and it'll be available everywhere that podcasts are available.
0: To learn more about Dr. Lori Santos and get show notes that have links relating to all the great things we mentioned today, including that awesome New York Times article I highly recommend, head to bossedup.org slash episode 130. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move Moment of the Week.
2: Hi boss ladies, my name is Christine and I'm calling from Renton, Washington. I graduated college and not only did I graduate college, but I was able to walk as the gonfalon carrier for my college. And grades are not everything by any means, but this is a really proud moment for me because I have ADHD and dyslexia. And growing up, I bombed basically every standardized test they threw at me and had to listen to a lot of school advisors as well as just repeatedly get test scores that told me I didn't meet standards and I wasn't good enough. And growing up, not knowing that grades aren't everything, I really thought that I wasn't intelligent and my confidence was extremely low. But luckily I finally started listening to my parents before I started college and decided that I was gonna get a 4.0 and work as hard as I could and luckily I went to a university where they supported me and I worked my tail off and I'm really happy to have this accomplishment and to see another example for students with disabilities that when you have the time and support you can achieve anything the sky is literally your limit and you can damn well sure ace any test they throw at you
0: Yes, boss, I am cheering you on and so proud of you for walking the walk and not just talking the talk when it comes to getting bossed up. Bosses like you inspire me each and every day to keep creating and keep investing in this incredible community of courage. So thank you so much for calling it in. It really makes me feel like we're a pod squad for real. Like We are just part of a big podcast family. And it's been such a delight hanging with so many pod pals on the road and know that I'm always down to organize more events related to the Bossed Up book or speaking or coming to hang with you in your community or your campus or your organization. So never hesitate to reach out to me at at BossUp.org. And I want to hear what you thought about today's conversation with Lori Santos. So hit me up on social media at Emily Aries or at org. And until I see you next, keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose, and together we'll lift as we climb. Let's face it. owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org slash speakup. That's bossedup.org slash speakup.